Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. So Jim, you and I had our eyes on the same news article this we- this past week, um, and so when I proposed that we talk about it, I did not know that you had already written a, pod- or a blog on this, so you're a little bit pre- more prepared um, than I am, but that's probably a good thing. But um, as always, I feel like after any time that I read one of your blogs, I tend to find myself thinking, gosh, I just, I want to dig a little bit more deeply into this. So I'm grateful to have this platform where I can ask you some follow-up questions. And actually on that note, um, if you, those of you who are listening, if you have found yourself having a few follow-up questions of your own, especially as related to the podcast, um, I invite you to join us um, coming up. We are doing our first ever live edition of the Church and Culture podcast, and that will be on February 23rd um, at noon. We are going to open up the hour um, for really any and all questions that you have related to church and culture. Um, So you'll want to be there for that. We'll put the link for how to access that in the show notes. You'll get more details about that in coming weeks, but I just want to plant that idea at the top of the podcast so you um, know that that's coming. But today, it's just me, Jim, so if you're kind of stuck with me here, I'll be asking the questions. Um, The article that I was mentioning earlier was released last week by the UK Times, and it talked about the first ever gender-neutral production of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. So Jesus will be played by a non-binary actor, Judas Iscariot will be played by a woman, and then all 12 disciples will be portrayed by either non-binary or female performers. Um, And all of this will be put on by the Edinburgh University Savoy Opera Club, and that was with the opera group, and that was with the permission of Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber, who originally co-wrote the production. Now, I have to confess at the beginning, I have not seen this. Um, So, Jim, I I might be mistaken, but I don't think that this opera or this production is known for having a very traditional view of Jesus in the first place. Am am I wrong about that? No. um, A little background. Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, along with his lyricist uh, partner, Sir Tim Rice, uh, have written, obviously, some of the most beautiful, compelling musicals of modern time, things from cats or phantom of the opera or vita and the most controversial jesus christ superstar initially uh they weren't able to get backing for that particular production the sage production so what they did was they just released the concept album and that was so successful the music itself that they were able to bring it to the stage uh there are a lot of concerns greeting its broadway uh debut back in 1971 it emphasized almost exclusively the humanity of jesus at the expense of his divinity. There was no resurrection following his death on the cross. It just ended with him. You know, he's dead. Um, As Rice quoted at the time, was quoted at the time, it happens that we, meaning him and Weber, don't see Christ uh, as God, but simply the right man at the right time in the right place. They made it very clear that they didn't embrace his divinity. So they took that out of of the production. It also made Judas a much more sympathetic and prominent character in fact, much of the plot centers on Judas and who does not like the direction Jesus is leading the disciples uh, and, is this, and is basically told through the lens of Judas. I mean, you're kind of watching this and being told the story through him. And he's very critical of Jesus. 
but back to the presentation of Jesus. It's more about the psychology of Jesus than anything else. And it makes it um, uh, a typical human psychology replete with doubts and anger and not exactly good doubts or good anger. And it plays fast and loose with a lot of things, including presenting Mary Magdalene um, as being in love, romantically in love with Jesus, though it does not show Jesus returning that romantically. Um, and again, emphasizing his humanity. I mean, there really is nothing about his divinity, and that's accentuated in the musical by ending with his death, but no resurrection. Hence the title, Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, meaning folk hero, someone kind of made up to be something they weren't, not anything more than that. Uh, even the chorus reads, Jesus Christ Superstar, do you think you're what they say you are? Uh, but that's pretty tame in comparison to throwing in the non-binary dynamic, which they, uh, the production uh, at uh, Edinburgh uh, has done now. Well, when I was reading the article, some several things popped out to me, but um, and I want to get your thoughts on several of them. But first thing was the creative producer, I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name, but Lou Foreman, he explained that he wanted to reinvent Jesus's final days for a modern audience. And this is a quote from him. He said, um, Jesus is remembered as being a man, but who were we to decide? None of us were around 2000 years ago. Now, that made me pause because I is he saying what I think he's saying, which is that historians aren't actually sure whether Jesus was a man or not? Yeah, I found that um, stunning. <laughs> I really did, because this is a university setting or a university production. So for someone attached to academia uh, to say something so uh, unacademic uh, was, again, just stunning to me. Suffice it to say that no historian of any merit would say that the historical figure of Jesus is simply remembered as being a man uh, and that such things uh, actually are uncertain since we weren't there to to see for ourselves. That kind of historical nihilism, and, and that it is nihilism, I mean, just extreme skepticism that you can't know anything is intellectually dishonest. Uh, Jesus is one of the most documented figures in all of human history. Uh, you find him listed in the writings of Thallus, who was a first century Greek writer, Pliny the Younger, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, and of course, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. And then on top of all that, the most detailed records are found in the four um, biographical accounts that are four independent biographical accounts in scripture uh, written by the men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or you know, brought together and put into the scriptures. So we not only know that Jesus existed, but we know that he existed as a first century Jewish man. That's without question. So the only way you can do what uh, he set out to do, which is completely reinvent not just Jesus' final days, but his actual identity as a man, is to throw out real, true knowledge of the actual historical figure, which, of course, we have in abundance. So there's a just a big difference between... Um, uh, recontextualizing something, which I think can have merit, uh, or translating it into contemporary understandings and language, and a full-throated reinvention of your own creation that is not based on anything with historical integrity. Hmm. Yeah, I, what I really found telling about that quote was when he said, who are we to decide, not like, who are we to know? Um, and that I feel like that's very characteristic of... Yeah. 
Have you on things? Well, I, this kind of sounds kind of funny in the light of our conversation. I don't mean to play devil's advocate here, but I want to kind of zoom out of the this particular production to ask a couple of related theological questions about this, because God is spirit. And so as such, like he is neither male or female. And I know there are a lot of definitions that are put forward for the term non-binary, but I know one of them is just having a non-gendered identity. So anatomically among humans, that doesn't really exist. We do have an, an anatomical gender, even if we don't feel like we identify with it sexually or the expectations that come with that anatomy. But anatomy aside, is it entirely accurate based on that definition of like a non-gendered identity to say that God is non-binary? Let's talk about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, and let's do it in the context of a theology of God. Because uh, I think it's a that's one of the good things about a podcast like this is that, you know, I don't, you don't, we don't have to talk in sound bites. When you, when you approach the subject of God theologically, you talk about several things. Uh, first is attributes, which are those qualities of God that constitute who he is, the very characteristic of his nature. Attributes are different than what God does, such as, you know, he guides, he preserves. They're also different from his roles, such as creator. Attributes are permanent, intrinsic qualities, inseparable from God's being or his essence. So you have God's moral attributes, such as God's goodness, which includes things like God is holy and God is love. And then you have attributes related to um, his very being. For example, that God is, is person and, and personal with a personality. Uh, God is also characterized by life. Uh, existence is a basic part of his nature. And throughout the Bible, he's referred to as the living God, as opposed to the dead gods of stone or wood. His very nature is to exist. He can't not exist. God is also infinite. Uh, not only is God unlimited, but he is uh, unlimitable. He is limitless. Uh, God is also constant, which means no quantitative change. God cannot increase in anything because he's already perfection, nor can he decrease, for if he were, he would cease to be God. Um, but to your question, another one of these is that God is spirit. Uh, he is not composed of matter, and he does not possess a physical nature, which means that he does not have the limitations involved with a physical body. Now, there are a number of passages that talk about God in physical terms, such as the hand of God or the mouth of God or things like that. Uh, these are what are known as um, anthropomorphisms. And an anthropomorphism is an attempt to express truth about God through human analogy. Uh, now, Mormons have seized on these and made the claim that God is nothing more than an advanced or evolved being, human being, to be specific, uh, Jesus has a physical body. They would say God has a physical body. They would only say that the Holy Spirit's the only one who does not. But that would be to completely misunderstand the biblical texts, not to mention the uh, clear teaching of Jesus in the fourth chapter of John, where he just simply said very clearly, you know, God is spirit. Um, and not only that, but if that's how you're going to look at those texts, I don't mean to um, go and rip on this, but you have to take all the analogies of God and, and make them literal. So now you have God as a blast furnace, and here you have God as a chicken, and you know, on and on it goes. And so um, there's just a lot of analogies regarding God in the Bible. So saying God is non-binary is taking a human, physical, 
newly created cultural category that doesn't even, as you mentioned, exist anatomically mm -hmm. and attempt to apply it to spirit. Uh, these are just wildly different categories and uh, and different natures and everything. I mean, it's not it's not apples to apples in, in any way you could look at this. That doesn't mean, and this is where I want to keep going with the theology of God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have male and female attributes or characteristics mm -hmm. in scripture. Remember, we were made in the image of God Male and female, he made us, which means that male and female are intrinsic to the image of God, both to the nature of God. If being made in the image of God meant male and female, then both are aspects of that. So not physically or sexually, but the nature of what it means to be male or female. And God is sometimes spoken of in feminine terms or imagery. God is, for example, depicted in Deuteronomy as the mother of Israel. Jesus even used feminine imagery to depict God. I mean, the three stories in Luke 15 each had a God figure in it. And the second of those with the woman looking for the coin was obviously a woman hmm. and through the party. So in that sense, God's nature includes both male and female. But that's very different than the kinds of conversations we're having in our world about what it means to be non-binary. And also very, very different than the Trinitarian titles. We keep saying theological here. Very different than the Trinitarian titles that are carried, that have sexual overtones, such as God the Father, God the Son. Those are relationships within the Trinity. Uh, but there is a deep sense that we are to look to the first person of the Trinity, uh, God the Father, as Father. And specifically for those of us in Christ as Abba, when Jesus taught his followers how to pray, he was very specific, you know, pray like this, our father. And the word used there was the Aramaic word for father, which was Abba. And when Jesus said that, and I, whenever I teach on this, I, I always like to point this out because it's so significant. Uh, everybody listening to him, probably there was a huge, probable audible gasp when they heard Jesus say, talk to God and address him as Abba. Uh, their mouths would have dropped open because no one would have ever used that word for God before. Abba was the most intimate family term that there was between a very small child and their father. Uh, in contemporary English, it has often been suggested that the best translation would be daddy. Uh, some linguists that I've read even go so far as to say it should be translated dada, uh, like the very first words that a baby would say while being held in the arms of their father. But again, uh, that's a reference not to the sexuality of God, who is spirit, but the nature of God and who he is. He is Father. The first person of the Trinity is God the Father. And we are to relate to him as such. I think where it gets tricky or a little bit muddy for people is the fact that you have God who does not have a gender, he, as you mentioned, he's spirit. But he did take on the form of a man in the person of Jesus. And because he was, I mean, of course, he was fully divine, but he was also fully man. Does that imply that he engendered himself as a male with male sexuality? And if so, like, is that important for the way that we understand God? Well, of course he did that. I mean, of course he became a biological man. That was what the incarnation was. Um, the incarnation yeah. was a real, intentional space-time event where the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became flesh. And sexually, that flesh was a human male. There was nothing non-binary about him, nor was there meant to be. Because, and now here's what, what you got to remember, though. 
coming as a man, though, wasn't the statement. That wasn't the statement. What is important about the incarnation in terms of understanding God is not that Jesus was an embodied male, but that he was embodied God. That's the theological headline. So in and through Jesus, we have an embodied picture of God, his truth and his grace. And I wish that were all there was to it. Cause I, I do, I, I agree with you. I feel like, yes, that is the headline, like God in human form. But I mean, historically, I mean, people have made much more of the fact that God chose to come as a man and have kind of used that as a way to pre present this like hierarchy between men and women. But you're saying that's, that's beside the point. It's really that he decided to become a human form. Like it's God yeah, in human particularly form. When, yeah, particularly when you look at that, that when he, uh, you know, walked this earth, he surrounded himself with men and women. He empowered men and women. Uh, and even went out of his way to accept women in ways that were completely against misogynistic nature of, of that day. So, yeah, I mean, you, you look at what he said, what he did, how he lived, that it was a, a man's body he had was not the statement. Hmm. Now, I, I hope I'm not like beating this to the, um, too much, but I, this this could seem inconsequential, but within... Stick with me here, like within polytheistic fertility cults of like the ancient Near, Near Eastern culture, kind of like the background, the context of the Bible, many in many polytheistic religions, even of today, people do believe that the gender of their and the sexuality of their God is a very significant matter. And I can't help but feel in some way that that sentiment is being adopted by our mainstream culture as well. Like we want a God who understands our sexuality and the struggles with our sexuality. And so in one hand, like claiming Jesus as non-binary seems to affirm many people's desires to be free from sexual stereotypes or pressures so that they can pursue, you know, the truest sense of themselves as they might say. So do you care? I mean, am I crazy in no, thinking no, no. that or what are your thoughts? I think you're absolutely right in bringing this up as a felt need. I think it is. We do have a desire for a God that we can relate to and who we feel can relate back to us. Uh, claiming God as non-binary doesn't really speak to that, though, except perhaps for a very small percentage of those who consider themselves non-binary. I think the larger felt need, and this is for me, was, is what's interesting maybe about your question, um, is our, our need for a feminine side to God. Yeah. Um, a softer side of God, which brings up, uh, and this could be an entire podcast. I mean, it's more like, you know, previous culture, but anyway, um, the role of Mary in the Christian faith, um, and particularly for Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians, uh, when you historically God, the father, uh, from about the fourth century on was often presented as uh, very stern and, and very unrelenting. Um, and which provided the, the psychological roots for Mariology. Uh, now, this was a distorted view of God, that he was simply stern, mean, and unfeeling, but you get the gist of it. The, 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 you know, I'll go to the loving, understanding mother of God to appease or get around or circumvent the angry father. Hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why Mary's so, so appealing, so popular. It's like you have this softer side of God. You know, the father's stern, the mother's not, and she's going to be more sympathetic to me. Uh, again, the truth is that God is beyond sexuality, but he's not neuter. You know, he's intense personhood, mm -hmm. both masculine and feminine in terms of characteristics, which means 
anyone can and should feel like they can relate to God. But ultimately, what we have, though, because I don't want to play like language doesn't matter, we do have Holy Father. This isn't about abandoning God the Father. Uh, Holy describes his transcendence, but Father describes his eminence. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Hmm. All right, well, if we go back to that Jesus Superstar article again, if I were to continue that quote that I mentioned earlier um, from the creative producer, um, he said, when he was describing the production, he said, it's the same story and songs, but the audience will view it from a different perspective. I don't think he's wrong. I think people will view it from a different perspective, but like, I guess my, my hesitation is that we are all prone to the error of viewing history through the lens of modern interpretation. And, and if we're not aware of, for lack of a better term, like the glasses of interpretation that we're wearing, we risk the danger of walking away with wildly inaccurate interpretations. So how might looking at Jesus through a postmodern, post-Christian, relativistic culture skew our understanding of him? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I, I think we're all prone to reading ourselves or our current day and culture into what we read, particularly from the past. Uh, I think of the work of uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who makes a very strong case, I think, a uh, compelling case that we misread much of the writings of the Apostle Paul because we're not reading them through the lens of who he was, which was a first century Jewish man. Um, the same could be said of Jesus. Uh, while the model of his life and the teaching he gave is is timeless, there's just a depth of understanding that is gained, not a changed understanding, but a deeper understanding when you're able to understand his day and 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 his culture, which is why I've often told people, um, hey, that when you when you when you um, study that era and and hopefully get a chance to actually visit the Holy Land and have those layers peeled back, it's like realizing that you've been reading the Bible in black and white when you could have been watching it in color. Hmm. Uh, but to the specificity of your question, I, I think that what we tend to do with Jesus, uh, looking at Jesus through a post-Christian lens, I think the result is we water him down. We make him toothless. Uh, we he, you know, say that he didn't say or mean what he clearly said and meant because it's so radical to our ears. It was radical then, to be sure, but but it's still radical, but in different ways. It's not offending Jewish sensibilities now the way it did in the first century as much, or revealing hypocrisy, though that can be there, as much as for our day, bringing a wholesale Jeremiah against our abandonment of morality and truth. But here's 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 what's sad. When you when you when you make Jesus what you see in the mirror, so that you can feel better about yourself then you no longer have a savior. You no longer have anybody that can do anything for you. You don't have anything other but the, the sound of your own voice. And so this is a, 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 a cheap savior, a powerless savior. It's no spirituality at all. It's simply, I'm just going to create a Jesus that looks like me, feels like me, tells me that everything that I'm doing is fine. And, and, and there's going to be something salvific about that. Hmm. There's nothing salvific about that. If anything, what I need is a savior who can reach into my life and pull me from my sins and help me and give me forgiveness and grace and truth. And, 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 you know, it just, it's just like when we, we, we think in our day, we're gaining something by making Jesus a poster of ourselves. And if anything, that's the total loss of Jesus and everything that he could bring to bear. 
You know, I had that exact same thought as I was reading the article and I could be totally wrong here. I don't want to put words in this person's mouth, but I just couldn't help but get the impression when I was reading through the article that those involved in the production, especially with choosing that particular production to do, you know, had some kind of maybe additional motive of wanting for people who identify as LGBTQ or non-binary to feel accepted by Jesus for who they are. Like you were saying, to see themselves in Jesus. And, but the thing is, is like, he does. Like, He really does see and love and accept everyone, not in a generic sense, but like in a deeply individualistic sense. And he loves like every single human being that he has ever created. And I know there's a difference between like accepting and affirming, which is what you were talking about. But I can't help but think that if people just knew how much God truly loved them, then they wouldn't be so desperate for him to affirm every single decision that they made. I don't know. And what's is absolutely true. And uh, and just uh, something just popped in my head. What's so tragic is the reason that they don't get that sense of God's acceptance and affirmation is because they've often been on the receiving end of judgment, condemnation and hate by yeah. those who claim God. But um, but I do think what you're getting to now is, is the heart of the matter. Uh, let me see if I can respond to what you said very eloquently, by the way, um, kind of sequentially walk through some of that. Yes. First of all, I, there is a difference between af- affirmation and acceptance. And this is one of the most important things to understand today and to try to get across in a loving way with the people that we're trying to connect with because they have conflated the two. Jesus and his people are all about acceptance, being loving and kind and willing to serve and relate and and, and interact and welcome. But today, acceptance has become a euphemism for affirmation. Uh, in other words, if you don't affirm whatever my lifestyle choice uh, may be, you're not accepting me. You're rejecting me. You're judging me and you're being hateful. And um, and that has become everything. Self-affirmation. But that isn't what people really are are looking for. Um, they're looking for acceptance, but but not simply so that they can continue to be who they are. They long to be uh, who they were made to be and who God intended them to be. When they're at their best and clearest thinking and, and most you know self-aware, that's that's what we're after. They may not be able to articulate it, but that they can't help but have that be what's driving their life because they are made in the image of God. And 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 the image and that will not release them from that hunger, that desire, that God-shaped hole that uh Blaise Pascal said will always cry out until filled by God. Hmm. Jesus offers the world something that's that's really quite radical. Uh, as John's gospel opens up and, and, the, and the, the older I get and the more I reflect on things, the more it, 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 this, this, this is so critical to everything about our interaction with the world, how we should be thinking and everything. John's gospel opens up and um, it's this wonderful theological prologue. And people love to get into that theological prologue, you know, and spend a seven week series on those opening verses and which is fine. But but it's like so many times I feel like, OK, you missed the headline. The headline is at the very end where it says, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and all these things. And then at the very end, it says he came to bring and all of that was to bring grace and truth. All that I mean, I, like, OK, that's the headline. Mm-hmm. He came to bring truth and grace. That's why the word became flesh. As Henry Cloud has written, uh, grace is accepting relationship. Truth is what is real. It describes how things really are. And so therefore, truth without grace is just judgment. And grace without truth is just deception or licentiousness. 
there must be both. And that's what Jesus brought. And uh, for example, the woman at the well was met with radical acceptance. And if you understand the cultural norms of that day and you look at that story, what Jesus did was scandalous in terms of interacting with her and the way he did it. And, and yet he also was very clear in confronting her with her serial promiscuity. Mm -hmm. uh, the woman about to be stoned was protected, but then encouraged to leave her life of sin. Uh, grace and truth, grace and truth. It was this combination that quite frankly made Jesus so winsome and compelling. It was because truth and grace were inextricably intertwined that Jesus could thunder a prophetic word and then be invited that evening to a keg party by the very people he had confronted earlier in the day without compromise. Somehow we've lost that dynamic. We either confront the world with a caustic, abusive spirit, or we water things down in the hopes of goodwill. Neither will engage a post-Christian world at the point of its deepest need. Again, truth without grace is just condemnation. Grace without truth is mere license. What the world needs is Jesus. And what Jesus brings is both truth and grace. That, that wonderful line in John 8, um, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That is so well said. And what a beautiful mantra as we consider how to navigate conversations like this with our family and friends, you know, moving forward, um, grace and truth. That is such a beautiful, yeah, a beautiful banner to to hold as we navigate our way through this very muddied world of culture that we're, that we're living in right now. Thank you for that, Jim. Well, um, that's going to bring this conversation to a close. And like I said, don't forget about our live podcast coming up in a couple of weeks, but it is a couple of weeks from now. And we've got some good conversations um, still to be had um, in the next couple of weeks. So as always, we hope you'll tune in again next week.